Which would you choose? A world with pyramids or a world without? What do you mean? Humanity has always dreamt of flight, but the dream is cursed. My aircraft are destined to become tools for slaughter and destruction. I know. But still, I choose a world with pyramids in it. Which world will you choose? I just want to create beautiful airplanes. your pick a film podcast i'm tatum and i'm geneva we are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other each week we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us to tears to laughter and everything in between we celebrate the craft of filmmaking as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch Geneva on this uh very rainy day for both of us welcome (laughs) thank you very much not great day to be indoors recording a podcast yeah we um that we I think I sent you some like snaps about this but this week we had um a lot of the smoke from the Canadian wildfires come down this way so it was like three days of not going outside because the air quality was so bad and then now it's been downpouring for like two days. So I've been inside for like a whole week. But if that gives you guys any sort of clue, I will have lots of things to say for the what we've been watching. I'm glad because I don't week. have a whole lot. So okay, good well, to have the roles reversed for once. I know. So why don't you get us started? Uh, what have you watched this week, if anything? Um, well, the, in terms of movies, the main thing that I've watched this week is I rewatched the town. Ta- the Thomas Crown Affair, the 1960s version with um, Faye Dunaway and Steve McQueen, um, which I remember being this kind of very sexy, very stylish 60s thriller, you know, sort of cat and mouse, a woman trying to, um, like, you know, catch this man who's pulling off heists, but also falling in love with him. Turns out it's actually very boring. Oh, <laughs> it's really? It's not a very good movie. Yeah, which I, I mean, I was pretty young when I saw it, so I did not really remember that. It just sort of has a great premise. Everyone looks so stylish and fabulous, and it sets everything up and then just kind of does nothing with oh, the premise. Man. Yeah, very disappointing. Um, when you I say mean, that you, know, you remembered it a certain way, how long ago was it that you watched it? I remember very vividly that I watched it when I was probably um, late middle school, early high school. I was babysitting, oh, okay. actually. And after the kids went to bed, I it was on TV. And so I just watched it. And I remembered basically nothing about it except for this one <laughs> scene where they sit down and play chess with each other. And there are these really long, lingering shots of their eyes and their lips as they're kind of, you know, checking each other out. <laughs> Which turns out is basically the highlight of the movie. There's, it's all downhill okay. from there. Oh, dang. Yeah, yeah. Disappointing. But I mean, you know, if you love 60s fashions, if you love 60s movie stars, you know, throw it on. But it, it's it's disappointing. So I should probably see the remake and see if maybe they mm. did something better out of it. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that was disappointing. I did finally watch Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Uh, which I'd been meaning to do for a while. It's very good, as all the Guardians movies are. But apart from that, really all I've been doing this week is just absolutely mainlining Perot. <laughs> Old episodes of the Perot, Agatha Christie um, adaptations of her Hercule Perot novels starring David Suchet that were made in the 
eighties, nineties, two thousands, um, very long running, uh, series, but yeah, I've just been getting out DVDs from the library and just <laughs> absolutely mainlining them, uh, which has been a lot of fun. It's always great to go back and see all these, you know, lovely British character actors who've been in a million things. And you're like, oh, hey, you're showing <laughs> up in this thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, would recommend that as a great comfort watch. So How what about you? you? spell that? Perot? P-O-I-R-O-T. He is a Belgian detective living in England in the 1930s who solves mysteries using his little gray cells. Little what? His little gray cells. That's his uh, his catchphrase. His brain. Oh. (laughs) He says, I must apply the little gray cells. (laughs) Okay. He has a big old black mustache that he's very proud of and he's very um, prissy and he keeps everything uh, very neat and orderly Um, and he's brilliant and he solves mysteries. Nice. You love yeah. those like old mystery oh, types my of goodness. TV shows. You oh, love them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I was obsessed with Agatha Christie in high school. I read every single book of hers that I could get my hands on. Um, so it's always fun every couple of years to go back and start rereading some of her books or rewatching some of the adaptations that I hadn't seen in a while. You know, yeah. just great, great comfort food. That's awesome. I love, I love just those shows or movies or whatever that you can go back to for comfort. Um, absolutely. Speaking of which, so I have dived into season seven of Game of Thrones, which I have not watched since it aired, however many years ago it was. It's not good. It's, it's just not, I mean, there's a few highlights here and there that I really enjoy. Um, I'm obsessed with dragons and we definitely get a lot of fantastic dragon moments and dragon highlights in the season, which I'm here for. Um, but it's really just not, not good. (laughs) Um, I won't go into like all of the details of it, but just the story is really bad and all over the place and time moves way too quickly. I mean, they're just jumping across. You can tell because if you know the geography of Westeros, which maybe not everyone does, but if you know the geography of Westeros, the people are traveling back and forth between different kingdoms and areas. And it's like happening from one scene to the next. It's like, this is definitely weeks, if not months of time passing in between, but we're just jumping. And it's like, it just feels like it has all the shock value of, Oh, let's bring back these characters and let's have them unite. And let's have them like make weird jokes about how they used to hate each other. But now they're on the same side because the, the night King is coming and winter is here and blah, 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 blah. So, um, yeah, it's pretty much just as bad as I remembered it to be. Uh, I, I'm on, I think I just finished episode six or maybe five. I don't know. I'm just before the episode where (laughs) they go out beyond the wall to capture a white, to bring it back to Cersei, where Gendry ends up running like however many miles in like five minutes and saves them. And, you know, it's just, it's not good. Um, so yeah, it's still comfort like comfort food for me though because it's Game of Thrones. So you know, I love the characters and I love the world. But man, season seven is really bad. Um, but okay. So in addition to that, I'll just kind of say really quickly all the things that I've watched because, like I mentioned before, it's kind of been a stay inside week because the air quality was really bad and it's been raining. And also, shout out to my mom, but she called me out about a week and a half ago and was like, Tatum, you're pushing yourself way too hard. You're 
on the brink of burnout. Like you need to chill. And I was like, okay. And what's Tatum's go-to way to chill? Watch movies. (laughs) So just real quickly, I'll say the things I've watched. So I finally saw 3000 years of longing. I finally saw the 2018 adaptation of the movie Suspiria. I watched Empire of Light from 2022. I watched Rye Lane, which came out this year. And then I watched, uh, I watched, um, oh my goodness, uh, Wong Kar Wai's Days of Being Wild from the 90s. And then I watched Battleship uh, Potemkin from the 1920s. So all across the board there, uh, some English speaking, some foreign language, some old, some new, uh, you know, different genres. So yeah, it's it's been a fun week. Um, I'll just say, I guess, the ones that I liked and then the ones that I didn't like. And I won't like linger on any of them in particular because that would take forever. But the ones that I really liked were I um, I really enjoyed Battleship Pot- Potemkin and Rye Lane. Rye Lane is really good. Um, as people on this podcast have probably picked up on at this point, I'm not a huge fan of romantic comedies. Um, but this one is really good and it's nice to see a rom-com that has two people of color in it because that's not very common, unfortunately. Um, so highly recommend Rylane. It's streaming on Hulu. Battleship Potemkin is, uh, not for everybody. I understand it's a black and white silent film, but it's pretty short. Uh, so that's on Max. And then I was this, sorry, was this your first time seeing Battleship Potemkin? It was. Yeah. Um, I actually quite enjoyed 3000 years of longing. Um, I would like to talk about it on this podcast at some point, like do a full episode on it. Uh, mm. cause I feel like there's a lot to talk about there cause a lot of people really enjoy it up until the end where they think it kind of falls flat and just kind of ruins everything. And I actually agree with that if it's interpreted one way, but if it's interpreted another way, I think it's actually a big accomplishment of a film, but I don't know which is the right way to interpret it. So I choose to interpret it in the way where it's done well, as opposed to the way where it's like, oh, it was really good, but the end, why? Um, But yeah, Suspiria was okay. It was really weird. There was one scene that I really enjoyed in the beginning, uh, but this uh, is the Suspiria remake that came out a few years ago. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. There are a few scenes that I really liked Tilda Swinton, I, she, man, she just like does everything. Um, so yeah. And then days of being wild was okay. It's not my favorite one car. Y film, but his movies are always visually stunning. So, um, and Wong Kar Wai is just a master of his craft. So it was, it was a fine watch. I probably won't revisit it, but it wasn't bad, but the disappointment of the week <laughs> was uh, Sam Mendes's movie Empire of Light that came out in 2022. It was one of my most anticipated movies of 2022, but I didn't end up watching it because I saw that it got terrible reviews and I was like, okay, I'm not going to pay to see this in the theater. I'll see it when it comes out on video on demand, which I finally did. This movie is terrible. It like it is it's it's one of the worst movies I've seen in a very long time. Like it is not good at all. And this is not Tatum being like, oh, Tatum's extreme and and very passionate about it. Like, no, this movie is objectively really bad. Um, and it breaks my heart that Olivia Coleman is affiliated with this. It breaks my heart that Roger Deakins is affiliated with this. Um, I mean, she, she gives a great performance and Roger Deakins gets some beautiful shots, 
But my goodness, the writing is awful. The story is so bad. It's so bland. It is so boring. It has nothing to say. It's like it 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 seems like a movie that a 12-year-old who's in middle school or a 10-year-old honestly who's in elementary school and is like this is what racism is about and this is what sexism is about and this is why I like movies and this like it's just it 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 just tries to tackle all of these different subjects but in such a basic bland way that is insulting <laughs> and really, really disappointing. Um, and not to mention the movie is just wicked boring. Like it, it's, it's a bad film. So I would not recommend this movie to anyone. Um, but if you want to be heartbroken by uh, Sam Mendes making a really bad, disappointing movie, check it out. But man, it sucks. It's really awful. Oh, that's so disappointing to hear. I, I was yeah. like you that I was interested in this movie until I saw the reviews. And so I have not seen it either. Um, yeah. It doesn't sound like it's one I'm going to be running to see. Yeah. It's, it's bad. I, I, I couldn't even finish it actually. I think I watched cause it's, it's too long. I think I watched like an hour and 15 minutes and I was like, this movie is not, I, I kept waiting for it to get better. I was like, Oh, maybe something will change something will, but it just was the same, the same nonsense forever. And I was like, I don't think this movie's going to, I don't think this movie is going to redeem itself in the last 45 minutes. So yeah. I'm going to, I'm just going to pass on this. Where do you stand on Sam Mendes as a filmmaker? Obviously you and I are both huge fans of his film, 1917 from a couple of years ago. Where yes. do you stand on the other major films in his filmography, American Beauty, Road to Perdition, things like that? I had a friend show me Skyfall when I was in college uh, because he told me that he was convinced that it that that movie would make me fall in love with James Bond films. Didn't work. I thought the movie was fine, but I wasn't a huge fan of it. Um, I actually have seen Revolutionary Road, but it's been a long time. Like, I don't think I've seen that movie since high school. So I don't feel like I have a fair judgment of that. I remember liking it when I saw it in high school, but maybe I would watch it now and think it's awful. I, um, as, as just kind of a... Uh, a statement I will not watch American Beauty uh because the subject matter of it disturbs me to be perfectly honest um I'm sure it's handled in ways that aren't as controversial as I'm thinking but just I I the subject matter seems disgusting to me um so I have chosen not to see the movie American Beauty um but Thomas Newman is the composer for pretty much all of these films and Thomas Newman is my favorite film composer of all time. So, um, he always lifts it up a little bit for me, but, um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. I mean, I love 1917. The rest of his movies I either haven't seen or they're fine. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just, just curious. Yeah. I, I'm definitely going to be more, wary of his films in the future because I feel like after 1917 I was so hyped I was like oh Sam Mendes he's a great director I want to watch everything and then after this one I'm like I don't know 1917 might have been a fluke because this <laughs> movie is really bad but also Sam Mendes wrote it and so I think he's not really as skilled of a writer as he is a director I don't know but either way I will not be revisiting Empire of Light probably ever again <laughs> um but yeah, anyway, 
yeah, I've watched a lot of things this week. So sorry if this section was a little bit longer. Uh, but no worries. Yeah, for the sake of just saving time, I guess we can we can move on to um onto our uh talk, our discussion of Miyazaki's film The Wind Rises. So um, bear with me for all of this. I'm realizing that I need to start doing my research like farther in advance than just an hour before we record the podcast. I mean, I'm right there with you. So yeah, because then I'm like rushing and I'm like, I don't know if this is well written. What I have here it could be nonsense sentences. I don't know. So um, bear with me with this. Uh, yeah. But anyway, here we go. So um, the wind rises. Um Adapted from his manga of the same name, The Wind Rises is the 11th and final film created by the legendary Japanese filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki for his production company, Studio Ghibli. I did do research. It's pronounced Ghibli, not Ghibli. There we go. Um, Because I've never known, but now I know. Uh, Founded in 1985, Studio Ghibli has become one of the most respected animation studios in the world, inspiring many other animation production companies such as Pixar. After The Wind Rises was released, Miyazaki announced his retirement at the age of 80 as he was no longer up to committing to the four years required to make each of his feature films that are meticulously hand-drawn with little to no CGI. Containing elements from the Japanese poet Tatsuo Hori's novel, The Wind Has Risen, The Wind Rises tells a highly fictionalized story of, I don't speak Japanese, I apologize, of Hiro Horikoshi the designer of several fighter planes used by Japan in World War II. The film captures true events like the 1923 Kanto earthquake and subsequent fires that killed 140,000 people, as well as the depression that spread throughout the country, even while Japan's government continued to pour money into its military. The Wind Rises is considered by many to be Miyazaki's most personal film, as his father, Katsuji, was the director of a company that manufactured parts for some of the aircrafts highlighted in this film. Additionally, Miyazaki's mother, like fictional Horikoshi's lover, Nahoko, uh, suffered tuberculosis. Not to mention that, born in 1941, Miyazaki probably has some memories of the final shocking events of World War II. Upon, uh, upon release of this film, it faced much criticism across Asia as many considered the film to be glorifying killing machines, uh, like the aircrafts, and, but nonetheless, the film prompts many essential questions about the reality and impacts of war for people of all classes around the world. Uh, Geneva, did any of that make sense or was that nonsense what I just read? No, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's kind of just a general overview. Uh, I could go into a lot more depth because Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki, I mean, there's just so much to discuss there, but I just wanted to kind of give a general overview and then go a little bit more specifically into the film. So, uh, Geneva, I think you told us last week that this is your first Studio Ghibli film. Uh, so, yeah, I am very interested to hear your thoughts. So go ahead and share them with us. Yeah, so this was my my first Studio Ghibli film. Uh, I don't know why, just for whatever reason, I never grew up with watching Studio Ghibli films as a, a child. And so been meaning for a very long time to finally fill in those gaps um, because of how just you know, incredibly well regarded all of uh, Miyazaki's films are. So I'm glad to finally have the opportunity to do that. And I think that this film was a really good starter place for me. Um, one thing that has always kind of um, 
been just an area of hesitation has just been that I'm not very familiar with Japanese culture. And so I worried that some of the, um, the sort of, you know, legend and fairy tale elements of it might be a little bit confusing or difficult to enter into. Um, you know, if I haven't, um, been familiar with them previously. So I'm really glad I got to start with a film that's more based in history and that allowed me to kind of, um, yeah, have a, have a way of, um, sort of instantly understanding a little bit about it. And I'm very excited to go on and, and go and explore some of the other, um, Studio Ghibli films. Yeah, this movie is a masterpiece. It's so. Yes. Oh my <laughs> gosh, this makes me so happy. <laughs> it is so oh incredibly beautiful to look at. Just every single frame is an absolute work of art. It's, I mean, I understand why people say that these are some of the most possible. I, I mean, not even some of the most. These are the most beautiful animated films mm. in existence. They're just so unbelievably gorgeous. And I love the story too. You know, I'm, it's, it's set in a time period that, you know, I, I know a lot about from the American European point of view, but I really don't know very much about Japan during the, the 1930s and 40s. So it was really fascinating to, to see this perspective of what it was like for someone who is, um, working in the creation of technology and what will eventually be, um, you know, fighter, fighter, um, planes and instruments of war, but to have that perspective of a, a person who really sees it as a, a vocation and an art. Um, and so even though that art is being, is going to be distorted to, to create, you know, instruments of, of killing and destruction, there is also the possibility of, for it being used as, um, something beautiful. And I, I love that it has that perspective of, you know, things can be used one way or they can be used another way. And you kind of see the beauty in the thing itself and the, um, just the, the beauty in dedicating your life to creating something that is, um, beyond what has existed before, before, beyond what is, could be imagined by anyone before. Um, yeah, the, the story between Hiro and, um, Nohoko, um, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not gonna be able to pronounce <laughs> yeah. it, but I know that's how it's spelled. <laughs> I I did not realize well, I intentionally did not look up um any of the actual history of of Hiro, um, apart from knowing that he was a, a real person. So I did not realize that she was fictionalized, but I thought the story that they created, the love story between the two of them was so beautiful. I was sobbing at the end of it. <laughs> I mean, I was honestly I was I was tearing up through quite a lot of this movie and um there were many many tears at the end but it's just so sensitive so beautifully rendered um and yeah i just oh i love this movie it's it's so beautiful <laughs> i'm so excited that we get i got to watch it i'm so glad you saw it um so let me ask did you watch uh did you watch it dubbed in english or did you watch it subtitled in english subtitled in english okay cool me too because i didn't realize until i was prepping for this i was like i feel like our experiences could be very different depending on which version we watched so i'm glad we both watched the same version yeah um, i've always i've heard that there are some very good dubs of uh studio ghibli films but i'm not sure which ones those are and in general, the sense I've gotten is that uh, subs tend to be better than dubs. You know, if you're if you're unsure, go go for the the subs. So that's what I decided to go for. Yeah, I I think pretty much exclusively whenever I watch foreign language films, I prefer um, 
I prefer subtitles because I like to I like to experience the the culture of the film and, and the filmmakers and all of those things as much as I can. Uh, not, not that there's anything wrong with dubs, but I just feel like you can get a little bit more taste into like the actual culture of the of the crew behind the film if you um, watch it subtitled. But <clears throat> yeah, so I. I love this movie. I have seen every Studio Ghibli film at this point, um, and this is my favorite. I won't say it's favorite, my favorite by a long shot, because Spirited Away and Totoro are both amazing. I love them. Um, fantastic. And I think one of the things that I love about Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli is that he has created so many different types of films. He's created some films that, in my opinion, I feel like this film is strictly adult. Um, I don't feel like this is a film for children. Uh, but then he makes other movies like My Neighbor Totoro, where it's like 100% for children. Adults can also enjoy it. It's one of my favorites. But that is very much so a, a children's film. And then there's kind of movies that are in between that appeal to both. Um, and I just think he's just a great storyteller. And he can make a great story for any audience, regardless of of age um, and I and culture, too. I mean, there's so many... Obviously, this is the only one of his films that you've seen, but he really creates stories where you can connect with them regardless of of where you're from. I mean, they're very specific to the Japanese landscape and the Japanese experience and um, all of those things. But a lot of the themes that he touches on are very universal. Um, And so, yeah, anyway, I'm not going to talk about his entire filmography, but yeah, this movie... I love, um, I just think that there's a lot of, he's tackling a lot here, but it doesn't feel overwhelming. All of the different themes are very much so tied together in a way that makes sense. Um, I don't feel like he's doing too much and loses grip on what he's trying to say. Um, and I just love these themes of, you know, the hero, he has this dream and you see it from a very young age that he is just in love with airplanes. He's in love with airplanes before he even knows what they could do, good or bad. He just thinks they're beautiful and he wants to participate in that. And it's not until he gets older that he starts to recognize like, oh, these things can be used for incredible destruction. And how do I navigate that? as a lover of this art form, but also not necessarily appreciating how they're being used. Um, but I see the potential of what they could be used for. And I want to be a part of that. Um, I also love this concept of, um, Caproni, I think is the name of the Italian like guy that he has all these imaginary, you know, journeys with. I love this concept of him bringing up, you know, artists, are only good for 10 years and how are you going to use those 10 years that you have? I was very intrigued um, by that line. Yeah, I think it's it's hinted at a few times, but it's just it's a really interesting question that uh hits me pretty hard. I don't necessarily think that it's a true statement, but m- maybe it is. I I think it's an interesting question. Um I also really love the themes of um and we, we can get into this in a little bit, but I feel like there's a lot going on here um, kind of on the sidelines, because in my opinion, I think that Hiro is a he's he's a very privileged man in the sense that he is a part of the military and he got to this very, you know, respectable school at a young age. And we see all these things where he's like on a train or he's walking through a city. And obviously there's a lot of pain 
and, you know, stuff going on around him, but he can kind of choose to distance himself from it. And so we only get bits and pieces of what's going on. And I think that that's a really interesting question. And a lot of people critique this film that Miyazaki is is trying to portray this person who's creating these death machines and portray him as this innocent person who's just making airplanes. And I don't think that's what he's trying to say. I think he's crafting this complex character um, that I don't think he's saying that Hiro is not responsible for the destruction that he's a part of. Um, but it, I don't know. There's just a lot going on there. But yeah, I love this film. And I think there's a lot to talk about. And I didn't even mention like the animation. I mean, it's it's beautiful. All of all of Miyazaki's films, I watch his movies, and I'm like, I'm gonna move to Japan <laughs> because <laughs> like the col- the colors are so vivid, and the way that he designs movement of objects and of people, it's just incredible. Um, so I would agree with you. He he's he's a master. This movie's a masterpiece. So yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. So I guess. I, I I would like to start by just asking you, what are kind of things that really jump out to you coming out of this movie in terms of like, wow, that is something that really, really like was powerful for me in, in any sort of way? Um, let me see. Well, just to start off with, um, you know, starting with the beauty of the animation, I found the this sort of um, the use of beautiful landscape and pastoral imagery throughout the film and even the the motif of the wind the fact that the film is called the wind rises and so much of his his relationship with nahoko is characterized by the wind or driven forward um through the use of the wind um very interesting considering the fact that he is his vocation is to create flying machines, which are this sort of made possible by industrialization that is a mechanical creation that is artificial, and yet it's harnessing the power of the wind. And so that kind of balance between the two, I found very interesting. Um, Yeah, I don't... (laughs) This is sort of a half-developed thought. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I, I, I found that very... Yeah, interesting, very, that sort of contradiction, and yet, I mean, I'm not sure if it actually is a contradiction, um, but as you said, you know, he is a he is a complex man, and there is that sort of balance between him as the artist versus him as the uh, tool seems a little bit harsh, but, you know, certainly someone who's being utilized by a heavily militarized state to create... Um, these weapons that are going to have very political and very violent uses um, is, you know, significant, especially considering the fact that he sort of intentionally does not want to um, really consider that or or is maybe incapable of fully considering those implications. Um, But yeah, anyway, those are (laughs) sort of some initial thoughts. Uh, any, Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean I think that I think that you're touching on an aspect of of Hiro that that I that I I'm not going to say that I love but just kind of continuing on what we're both saying. He is a very complex character in that in a way he is kind of this just innocent dreamer who pun intended has his head in the clouds, you know, and and he doesn't 
he doesn't really know what he's well he does know what he's doing you know it's just it's this interesting dynamic of I don't know like where's that line between wanting to create art and knowing the potential of you know it could be something good but knowing at the same time that what you're creating is participating you know or or directly affecting people in incredibly destructive ways and yeah I don't know it's just it it, he's such an interesting he's such an interesting character and he's so complex like I can see all of these different angles to I don't know it, a part of me feels like he should be someone who's lying awake at night wrestling with all of this of like oh wait ah I don't know but I also feel like he's making a very specific choice to ignore it which in my opinion is incredibly problematic but he also almost seems childish in certain ways. And, and it's like, well, can he make an informed decision if he, if, I, I don't know. It's just, they're so, he's yeah, so interesting. It's complex. It's complex. I love the way the film dramatizes his dreams and these sort of visions that he has. So the conversations mm-hmm. that you mentioned with the Italian count, I keep forgetting his name. Um, but then to the way that um, he will keep he will constantly be looking up at the sky and seeing these visions of airplanes flying through it or he'll see you know storm clouds or clouds created by smoke caused by the the fires after the earthquake and see planes flying through it and there's this sort of um kind of almost finding beauty in the midst of chaos and destruction that i think is this essential part of his character that leads to his um you know the the problematic aspects of him the this the fact that he is willing to go along with um the the creation of these devices but it it also leads to what is notable and beautiful about him is that he has this wider vision and this ability to find something that is um something that is beautiful and something that is um beyond imagining um you know he has this sort of farther vision than the people around him which yeah is has its own good aspects and maybe not so good aspects well it's it's like that that's one of the reasons why i chose the the quote that i did for the beginning this concept of would you rather live in a world with pyramids or without pyramids i mean they're beautiful structures to look at, but they were also made by slaves in very brutal circumstances. And, you know, just the idea of things can be beautiful, but also really bad for humanity in certain ways. But does that mean that they shouldn't happen or that they shouldn't be created if they're also contributing? It's like they contribute negatively, but also positively at the same time. Yeah, I mean, there, there are so many we could say this about so many timeless works of art, you know, mm-hmm. with the art that exists, paintings by artists who were had these really tortured personal lives or um, struggled with their own mental health. And, you know, there's that question of would that art exist if they did not go through these struggles? And is it worth mm-hmm. it that they had to go through these struggles for this art to exist? I mean, there's no simple or... Um, really no possible answer to that because we can't (laughs) we can't know what could have happened otherwise um but it is yeah it's a question that plagues so much of art yeah 
Yeah. And uh, there, I feel like with this specifically, there's also the question of, or not the question, but I feel like the reality that even if Hiro hadn't made these planes, someone else would have done it, you know? So it's like, what's going to happen is good, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I find it honestly incredibly cool that literally the first thing you said when I asked you the original question, then you've kind of brought this up several times, is this theme of um, kind of the contrast of beauty but also destruction and how they kind of are held in the balance because Mm. that is one of Miyazaki's biggest themes in every single one of his films. He is very particular and very, you know, not shy about the fact that he, he's very anti-war. He's very pro environment. And in lots of ways, he hates humanity for what it's done to the earth And he has so much respect for the planet and just the beauty that exists inherently. And so a lot of his films deal with, well, we've introduced technology and industrial and industrialization to this planet. And that has had catastrophic effects and at what cost and to what benefit. And that is a theme that he touches on in. I'd have to think about it more, but I think it's almost literally every single one of his films. It is something that is very meaningful to him. And I think something that he's wrestled with for a long time um, because, you know, he's grown up and lived through so many different wars and seen technology advance. Uh, Cause again, he was born in 1941. And so he's seen a lot of changes in his time and, um, and Asia has been involved in lots of different wars and very complex ways. And um, yeah, so I, I just, I love that you're picking up on that because I mean, how, of course, of course you're picking up at it. How could you not? But it, it's one of his biggest, biggest themes. And in each of his films, he approaches it in different ways of, of, you know, for example, um, it's through the perspective of a child and how do they perceive these things? Or it's through, for example, in Spirited Away, it's through entirely metaphorical creatures, but how, how can we look at it through that lens? Or, you know, there's just so many allusions to that in his stories. And I feel like this film is, probably one of the most literal ways that he approaches that because like you said there isn't really there aren't creatures in this film you know Hiro he he travels to an imaginary place in his mind but everyone in this film is human you know we don't have talking talking fire pits or or made up you know bunny rabbit type creatures that are called Totoros which I love Totoros you know it's just it's all humans and you know, I think it says something that this is his his last film that he made. It's kind of him being like, all right, you know, this is my final hurrah. I finished my, you know, quote, 10 years, even though it's been, it was like 40 <laughs> years or, uh, but you know, my time is done and, uh, this is kind of what I have to say. And, and it's a love letter, not a love letter, but you know, it calls back to his parents and his lively, not his livelihood, like his childhood and how he grew up and things like that. Um, but yeah, he, he's such a, he's so skilled in holding those two opposite things in the balance because that's what the world is. We are constantly balancing the fact that the world is beautiful and that humans can make things that are beautiful, but also the world sucks and humans make things that suck. <laughs> so <laughs> she said so eloquently, but uh, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for that when I go back and watch the rest of his filmography. Yeah, I yeah, I would highly recommend. I feel like after this one, 
I would go for, I mean, there's so many you could watch, but I would go for like My Neighbor Totoro next because that's just like such a pleasant film. Mm -hmm. And then after that, Spirited Away, which is, in my opinion, really intense. You know, that that movie is almost frightening in certain, <laughs> certain ways. Spirited um, Away is the one that I, I keep hearing as this is possibly the greatest movie ever made. You know, it's, yeah, it's in it's, that conversation. I mean, it it is it is a masterpiece. Like, that's why when I say The Wind Rises is my favorite, but not by much. I mean, Spirited mm-hmm. Away, I think it's just a little bit, it goes a little bit too disturbing for me in certain ways that it falls a little bit behind the wind rises. So I'm like, Oh, I don't like feeling this uncomfortable. <laughs> Whereas the wind rises, I feel challenged and I feel uncomfortable in certain ways, but it's not like I finish it and I have a bad taste in my mouth, <laughs> you know? Um, it's like at the end of wind rises, I hate humanity, but I also love humanity. Whereas spirited mm-hmm. away. I'm like, I don't think I love anything about humanity. <laughs> we all just need to escape and get out of here. Um, be spirited away to another world yeah like humans need to no longer exist for so many reasons like we're gluttonous we're selfish we create things that are awful like i mean i'm i'm incredibly belittling not belittling that film but like simplifying it It, right right, right, right. i mean it has lots of great things to say and it's not it's not full-on you know just negativity but it 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 is a a difficult watch it's also a movie that demands a rewatch it is not as straightforward as the wind rises (laughs) at all but anyway, um, yeah. Do you have anything else that you wanted to add? I'm I'm struggling to come up with. Questions. I know this is the thing is like I'm struggling to even, you know, I, I watched it this morning, and so even now I'm just I'm still processing it, and so I'm even struggling to to think about things to talk about apart from this thing is so good, this thing is so good. <laughs> you mentioned well, before the um, the yeah, class aspect of it, which I found interesting. Mm, Again, mm-hmm. coming to it not really knowing very much about Japanese um, history and culture, especially at this time period, um, you know, a- apart from obviously involvement in World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just seeing the sort of uh, social divisions um, mm-hmm. and how they impacted life at this time period was very interesting. Um, as you mentioned, Hiro uh, does seem to be from a more privileged family. He's able to go to a, a really good school and get a really high paying job. Um, but then later in the film, as um, you know, in the, the 1930s, as as the war is growing closer and uh, political and um, governmental considerations are picking up, there is um, the fact that he works for a company that has military contracts becomes incredibly important because that is the protection that he's able to find. He has, I'm assuming it's because he has this um, kind of random conversation that he didn't um, seek out at all. But while he's staying at, with, at a hotel, a man strikes up a conversation with him and he seems to be some sort of um, subversive within the Japanese society, kind of um, trying to encourage people to go against Japanese um, alliances with Nazi Germany, um, unless he was actually a representative of the government trying to <laughs> root out subversives. They don't really, you know, make a whole lot clear, but um, he becomes under suspicion from the government after that, and so he needs to go into hiding. And his uh, relationship to the company, which has um, contracts with the military, becomes incredibly important because they are able to shield him from any sort of uh, repercussions um, because he is valuable to them as a an engineer. Um, so it is, the, again, that kind of balancing of um, 
the things that are are beautiful in in life, you know, friendship and love, you know, this allows him to um to pursue a relationship and eventually marry uh, Nahoko and his seeming like genuine friendship with his manager they he and his wife allow him to allow Hiro to stay with them and um live with his wife there um for as long as they need but then again there are also those sort of darker political considerations that are at play as well yeah i mean there's that's one of the things i love about this movie i just feel like there's so much subtext there's so many things that are going on that the movie doesn't have to obviously say, you know, it's like, okay, he's staying with his, you know, his supervisor at their house. And so that we kind of know that people are looking for him, but it's not like we have a scene of, of, you know, officers somewhere being like, we have to find blah, 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 blah. And they're like knocking on doors. You know, it's just, the movie has this ability to just tell you what's going on that you're not seeing without telling you what's going on that you're Mm -hmm. not seeing, you know, and kind of going back to what you were saying about um, just kind of how I mentioned class in the beginning. You know, I just think that there, I, I, I wish I knew more about Japanese culture in that sense when watching, I mean, I wish I knew a lot more about Japanese culture, period, but specifically when approaching this movie, because I feel like there is a lot to be said for, you know, the fact that Hiro, when he meets Naoko, like, she has a maid, you know, and I don't know how common that is, but I feel like it's probably not very common, which I think hints that her coming from more of a privileged place and being able to go to these really, um, you know, seemingly very exclusive treatment centers for people who have tuberculosis. I don't, I don't get the sense that every citizen of Japan has access to that type of treatment. Um, and I just think it's, really interesting how in the beginning you know we have these this beautiful beautiful yet horrific animation sequence of this earthquake and and the buildings kind of moving up and down and then everything is on fire and Hiro kind of doesn't even register that it's a tragedy he's kind of like okay I'll take you home and then he goes to school and they're like oh my gosh our books our books are being you know what's happening to our books but it isn't really this sense of wow something major just happened and like our lives are torn apart and our homes were destroyed and where's our family and what, you know, it's just very much so like, Oh, this happened. I see fires in the distance. I don't really know what's going on, but I'm just going to take this girl home and go back to school, you know? And I think that that's just really a sign of, of how privileged he is as, as a person. Um, and I just, you know, I look at all of these people that are falling off of trains and and jumping onto trains and walking through the streets carrying their packs I'm just like what are their realities what are their life stories and we don't get to see them but but we know in the back of our minds what their life stories are and I just think that that it's just really really well done um I think the writing for Hiro's character is really good as well in that you know you get a sense of him, him as a very full fleshed out personality you know he he's very pragmatic in his thinking and his outlook and he's not very expressive but you can also tell that he does feel things very deeply and he does Mm -hmm. have these um sort of deeper thoughts and emotions i mean so many of them come out in his dreams his dreams are obviously Mm -hmm. him kind of processing the the contradictions in his you know his vocation versus what he knows um it could and will lead to 
Um, I noticed in particular in some of his conversations with Nahoko when they're they're reunited as adults, um, and you know they're they're first realizing that they're falling in love with her, and she will kind of speak to him of her feelings, and she'll be like, "I'm so glad that I saw you," and he'll respond being like, with things saying things like, "Oh, your canvas is going to get wet," you know, it's <laughs> not this sort of direct explanation of his feelings but you can tell by the things that he says that he is in love with her and he cares for her very deeply it's just his way of expressing it um which i found to be really really beautiful and really well done the two of them are just they're so beautiful (laughs) together you know they balance each other so well her being more kind of emotionally open and expressive and him being um less obviously so but obviously caring for her very deeply yeah i it was yeah when you mentioned um hiro kind of being able to stay with with his supervisor who i think his name is kurokawa or i i Mm. I can't i speak english and i speak spanish so i feel like anything i'm saying either sounds like an english speaker or spanish like or like a weird amalgamation of the two of them but Kurokawa I think is his name I just I love how I wrote down the quote but how um during the the wedding sequence the wife like his wife kind of comes in and announces that you know the bride-to-be is coming like she's coming blah 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 blah. and then Kurokawa I wrote down the quote he goes hear me this man is an insensitive simpleton without a home of his own if that's okay with you uh okay please come in (laughs) and I I love that Again, I feel like that's another another hint at something that we don't really... I mean, we see it, but I feel like when we're first introduced to Kurokawa, he's kind of this, you know, I don't know, very... <laughs> well, it's <laughs> so funny even... because he, the way he is drawn when he was first introduced, you know, he's very short and his, his face is kind of permanently scowling. And his hair is like flopping his around. His hair is flopping around. He he's like kind of like storming around and ordering Hiro, you know, to his desk. And I thought, okay, well, he's going to be the sort of short-term villain. You know, he's going to be the, the manager who's all grumpy and doesn't understand mm-hmm. what Hiro is doing. Then Hiro is going to get the best of him. And that's not at all how no, the story turns out. No, he is... Yeah. He's there throughout the the entirety of the film, and he once he understands that Hiro is really good at his job, he is so fully um, supportive of him and of his, his ideas, and um, is so willing to take personal risks in order to to keep him safe and to allow him to um, marry the woman that he loves. He really turns out to be a a good friend in the context of mm-hmm. the the story that's happening, and it's just yeah, it, the the way that of the reality of his character design was just so um it did not prepare me for the way his story was actually going to turn out which i really liked yeah i mean i think that honestly i feel like out of all of the relationships in this movie the one between hiro and kurokawa is probably my favorite i just love i love their friendship and how they kind of start out as this boss employee dynamic and then kind of become they, 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 I just genuinely feel like they become equals and they're not just coworkers anymore. You know, they're, they're, I mean, obviously they're not just coworkers cause they end up living together in the same home uh, and he ends up marrying them. But um, I just love kind of that evolution and seeing this consistent relationship throughout and, and how it grows and changes. Um, I just think it's, it's really beautiful. And uh, I think Kurokawa really respects Hiro's dreams, you know, and I think he respects that Hiro sees planes as art. Um, and so he tries to put him in places where he can do that, but doesn't, 
you know, I don't know. I just feel like, I guess I'm just maybe projecting my own desires, but I feel like from my perspective, I see him being very supportive of, of hero in terms of seeing planes as art rather than, um, these, you know, destructive machines. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess kind of, you know, we can talk more about, um, uh, Hiro and, and Naoko if you'd like, but I would just like to talk about, I guess, the different, uh, a few more of the relationships that Hiro has. So he has relationships with his friend. I think his name is like Hon, Honyo or Honyo. Yeah. Yeah. And then he also has his relationship with his sister, which is very fleeting, mm-hmm. but comes in and out. So I'm curious, do you have any, um, any thoughts on, on either of those relationships? Yeah, definitely. Um, I I love his relationship with his sister, how she's kind of, you know, this sort of little sister who's always kind of scolding him, um, but they do clearly really love and and care about each other. Um, The fact that I'm very curious about their sort of family situation, because the fact that she's able to go off and become seemingly a very independent um, woman uh, to become a a full doctor and um, is is very impressive. Again, you know, a Seem, seems to be an indication that their family has some level of, of privilege that they're able to get this education for their kids. Um, but her, I didn't expect her coming in at the very last part of the story and kind of playing a, a role in his relationship with Nohoko as she is dying of tuberculosis. But it was very sweet to see um, the bond that they're able to kind of rekindle and um, what she's able to do there. Um, I it do felt it, mm, it felt very, very, I mean, maybe this says more to say about my family. I don't know if this is a universal experience, but it felt very relatable, relatable to me in the sense that, you know, she kind of shows up and she's like, congrats on your wedding. And he's like, congrats on being a doctor. I'm like, when was the last <laughs> time you guys talked? Has it been like five years? <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, you know, you, you're finally congratulating each other on these huge life accomplishments or <laughs> not co- accomplishments, but life changes, you know? And, and yeah. it's like, yeah, <laughs> nice to see you. Congrats on this huge thing that happened in your life. <laughs> I know. I was kind of wondering that too. Are their parents still alive? Do they not, you know, hang out with each other anymore? But I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I I loved his relationship with his friend. Um, I'm just gonna say Honyo. Uh, I don't know if that's sure. correct. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we apologize to any <laughs> Japanese people that are listening to us. Yeah. We're trying, but we're miserably failing. Yes. Um. Yeah. Uh, it it's a little less. Um sort of, I guess, distinct. He's less distinct as a character to me than Kurokawa is. Um, but seeing the the fact that he has kind of a, um, I guess, someone who starts out more as an equal to him the whole time that he's at the company and the the collaborations and the way that they, even though they eventually get to a place where they can have, be leading their own projects, they're still sharing ideas and um, respecting each other as equals is very nice to see. I found the... Um, the, the section of the film where they go to Germany together. Mm. Very intriguing. Um, mm-hmm. Just as a, again, sort of hinting at the, the political situation that's happening, even though Hiro does not seem to be really um, paying too much attention to it or, or any more than he absolutely needs to, because he's kind of just, he's about the work, he's about the art, he's about, you know, gaining as much knowledge so that he can do the best job that he can. But um, the fact that there is this sort of very uneasy 
alliance at this time or potential alliance that's happening. Um, obviously, there will be a full political alliance between Germany and Japan at, at some point. I'm not sure exactly what year the um, the visit to Germany is supposed to be, but the the incident where they go out for a walk in the evening and they see someone running by and then there's um, what I guess are supposed to be kind of the the military police potentially kind of following him, like running after him and beating him. I wasn't quite sure what is happening there, but I'm assuming it has something to do with the rise of um, the Nazis in that kind of early 1920s era. Um, but it is something that they sort of observe, but is very kind of disconnected from them. You know, they, they kind of see it, but don't really... Um, they they sort of take it in as information, but they they don't do a whole lot of kind of processing about it, you know, probably in part because, I mean, what can they do? You know, they're sent there by their company. They have no role in this alliance whatsoever. There's not a whole lot they can do apart from just sort of observe it. But I found that very interesting, just as an indication of what's going on at the time. Well, I feel like, sorry to, you know, keep beating a dead horse, but I feel like that continues with this theme of, there's so many things that are, I mean, as we all know, World War II is incredibly complex. I mean, it really was a, a world war, like, you know, and I feel like there was so much going on. And again, we just get hints here and there. And obviously, you know, because a lot of people know the basics of what happened in World War II. So it's like we can see little hints of things and know this huge thing that it's attached to, you know, and... I just love, again, but this concept of we are living, you know, while watching this movie, we are living in this world, but seeing it through Hiro's eyes. But we as an audience, we know what's going on outside of this, but Hiro doesn't. And it's just, it's this, again, like, I just think it's amazing how we're able to see Hiro as a character and see his story, but also know the larger story that he's a part of that he either doesn't understand or chooses not to see or whatever it might be. Um, and we get another hint at that too when when they're in Germany and, you know, they kind of go over to, to look at that plane and the Germans clearly are not happy that they're looking at this other aircraft and they have this interaction where it's like, we were given permission to look at this because of the contract and the Germans like, we don't care because you guys basically are Japanese scum. Like we're just giving you money to make us aircrafts, but we don't actually really care about you. And I really get a sense that, you know, there is, there is a, you know, a racism and a superiority complex there between the Germans and the Japanese that again, I feel like is only hinted at. We know it exists, but we just see Hiro have this one interaction and he kind of just like almost almost passively response it's just kind of like hey guys you know we're all on the same side here we're just here to make planes like let's let's chill out you know and I'm like dude you do you not like see the subtext of <laughs> you know what's going on here and um I just think that again that's such a brief moment that gives an example of the the larger world that that this that this small little story is a part of and um also um going back to something that you said, I do really like those moments when we see Hiro and, and Hanyo kind of 
um, collaborating with each other because I feel like another movie would be like, oh, we started out as friends, but now we're competing because one person's better and who's going to come out on top. But this is something where Hiro sees Hanyo's aircraft and is like, hey, why don't you use smoother screws or bolts or whatever it is because it'll limit uh, you know, friction or whatever and it'll make the aircraft go faster. And Hanyo's like, that's a great idea, but I'm going to wait until you make your own plane and use that technology so that you can get credit for it where credit is due and then I'll implement it afterwards. And he stays true to that, you know, like he waits until Hiro makes something and then he asks for his permission to use that technology on his next thing. And I think that, I think that that is a really beautiful addition to the story. A, it's just nice to see friendship between men that's not competitive, but also I think that Miyazaki is again, you know, not making an argument, but just like showing this dynamic of, you know, he he could have gone all the way and been like all of the people who made these aircrafts were terrible monsters, but he doesn't do that. He's like, no, there's actually really kind regular people behind this which I don't know if that makes it more comforting or more disturbing you know but but I like that it it creates even more complexity within that of the people behind these machines I mean a fair amount of them probably suck (laughs) a fair amount of them probably know what they're doing and you know want to advance certain things in ways that are not good but but he doesn't he doesn't he chooses specific characters that don't have that perspective and I just think it's it's really this movie's great (laughs) yeah going along with that there is um a brief line the when Hirov gets his first um the the first project that he's allowed to head up he immediately asks for Hanyo to be part of the team and Kurakawa says no we're not going to put you him on that team because you guys will end up as rivals and friendship Uh is more important and I was just like I don't know whether this is a line that is indicative of the work culture in Japan Mm. at that time, or if this is an intentional choice to build out Kurokawa as a character. I don't know enough, again, about, you know, Japanese history at that time. But yeah, it definitely stuck out to me because, you know, from 21st century American perspective, you cannot... It could just be a comment on on humanity. It doesn't necessarily... I mean, it could be a specific thing to Japanese culture, but I think it could just be a general thing. I mean, I think it's probably not an uncommon thing for people to be friends and then they enter the same field mm-hmm. and they become competitive. I, I think that that's a pretty, probably a pretty normal, not normal, but like a pretty common yeah. thing that yeah. that happens. Well, it's just specifically the, the fact of a, a higher up at a company choosing to um, prioritize his employees' friendship with one another over potential efficiency. I couldn't tell whether that is a um meant as an indication of um work culture of that time or of Kurokawa oh as a character. I see what you're saying I see um, what you're saying yeah yeah but either way I mean would love to see more either of those beautiful <laughs> prioritizations <laughs> in uh, 21st century American work culture yeah men men being kind to each other being emotionally sensitive <laughs> like, although granted know, I mean he immediately follows that up with we have our own project that we're going to give to we have our own plans true. for Hanyo so you know it wasn't true. like they they were just doing that in a vacuum but still That's, it was yeah. very nice yeah I yeah oh man um Gosh, I'm I'm just like running through. I'm trying to run through my brain different scenes and stuff and sequences. Cause, I mean, is there anything is there anything further that you want to discuss about with um with 
Hero's kind of uh, imagine imaginary sequences that he has, either with Caproni or just kind of the concepts of of things that he's tackling when he's in that headspace. Because, you know, we have in that last scene where Caproni kind of asks him, you know, how did you spend those 10 years, you know, and, and, and we have a sequence earlier than that where he's kind of checking in on Hiro and being like, is the wind still rising, you know, and, and he just comes in and out. It feels like every five years or so he makes an appearance and, you know, we have that sequence at the end as well where, you know, uh, after, um, after Naoko has died and she shows up and she's like, she tells Hiro, I want you to live. Like you need to, you need to keep living. Um, but that comes after the expiration of Hiro's 10 years. So I'm like, what does keep living mean? Does that mean that he needs to step away from making airplanes and move on to something else? And that's what living means? Or, you know, I don't know. I just feel like there's, I just feel like there's a lot of depth in all of the sequences where Hiro goes into his imaginary land, but a lot of them are very abstract to me. So I don't know if you have like specific, I don't know any specific takeaways from any of those sequences. Yeah, actually, the one that really stuck with me, and I'm forgetting at what point it comes in. Uh, Mm -hmm. I want to say it's shortly after he starts working at the Mitsubishi company, but I might Mm -hmm. be confusing the timeline. But it's when he has this vision of, um, sorry, what's the name of the the Count Cabroni? Caproni. 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 Okay. Um, I also don't speak Italian. (laughs) Yeah. So we could be messing up a lot of pronunciations here. Anyway, um, Caproni takes him on this huge aircraft that he's created, and it's just teeming with people. And he says, mm-hmm. I brought on board all of the workmen and all of their families, mm-hmm. and um, and they're, they're climbing onto the wing, and they're looking it over. And I think Caproni says something about how, like, he has this line where he says something like, tomorrow this thing is going to be taken and used for war it's going to be used for bombing but for now we've decided to give everyone a ride and i just thought it was this really beautiful kind of semi-abstract picture of this sort of you know life and abundance and everyone being able to be together and to be able to use this thing that has been created for a, a really beautiful purpose you know everyone being able to get together and to celebrate and to enjoy this thing that was created and the idea that it would it is then tomorrow going to go and be used for this horrible destructive purpose but for one bleep, sort of brief you know shining moment it gets to be used for something that is good and perfect i just i just found that really evocative really beautiful in a way that i'm you know again still kind of processing um but that kind mm-hmm. of that really stuck with me yeah, I mean, I think this film does a really good job of a lot of the planes that we see are, you know, fighter planes and aircrafts, but a lot of them as well, specifically the ones that happen in these imaginary sequences are beautiful, beautiful planes that are not fighter structures at yeah, all. That, it's you know, showing they, the, the potential for these planes to be used not for destruction, but as passenger planes, as a way to transport people or to bring people into this you know, completely unknown, new, exciting experience that they could not experience in any other way. You know, it's this other potential for these things that he's created that it could perhaps um, be realized once the war is over. 
Yeah, and this and it's in this world filled with laughter and children and families mm. and beautiful colors, bright colors and lots of wind, you know, and pretty much none of those things are present in the reality that we see. We don't we don't really see um, full families together, you know, because we have this sequence where Caproni is like, oh, yeah, that's my wife and my kids. And we see a family and out in the reality, it's like we see a brother and a sister or, you know, a father and a child, but we don't really see full families. We don't really see much laughter. You know, it's it's just I don't know. I just feel like these dream sequences are they're really powerful. And I think that there's a reason why I, I'm not going to necessarily say what it is right now because I haven't like really thought this idea through but there's probably something very true to the reason why Miyazaki chose to have these imaginary sequences in my opinion be the most um what's the word I'm looking for like not the most important but the most profound like it's the real that's where we're asking the big questions you know in in the reality that's where we kind of see what's happening but in the in the imaginary world, that's where it's like, okay, but what does this all mean? What do we think about this? What you know? What are the implications of this? And and um, I don't know. I just I think I think it's beautiful. Um, I would love to get your interpretation on you know the last sequence that we have in this movie where Caproni kind of asks him, you know how were your, how were your 10 years as an artist? You know, do you feel like you spent it well? And, um, then, then, uh, Naoko showing up and just telling him, you know, like, I want you to live and, and what does that all communicate to you? Like, what is your takeaway from that? Um, oh gosh, this is such a good question because this is the part that I'm still, yeah, I don't have Most an answer sure. either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so... Could we talk first about that idea of an artist only having 10 years and what you think that means? Because it seems... No, because that terrifies me. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems so transparently on the face of it, mm. not true, or at least um, mm. very mm-hmm. specific to the type of art being discussed. Because mm-hmm. I think if the type of art... I mean, kind of stretching the definition of art, but, you know, it already we're we're including the definition of art here being the creation of new forms of technology and new um um uh new vehicles you know airplanes um you know if if we're talking about art being say some sort of physical performance like you know a um a ballet dancer for example they generally their career is not 10 years unless they're it's cut short by an injury but it's still relatively short it's you know maybe 20 years 15 to 20 years um at uh you know their their sort of um physical physical peak um other tor- types of art obviously can go out for a lot longer like you said Miyazaki has had a, a 40 year career um you know someone like Martin Scorsese has had you know 40 50 year career you know and i think um, has just continued to develop and grow as both of them have continued to develop and grow as artists throughout that time span. I don't think you could say that there was really only a 10-year period that they were operating at their peak. Um, but I could definitely see when you're, um, the medium of art that you're working in is the creation of these new technologies. Things move so quickly that you can really only be um, on the front line of development and innovation for about 10 years. Um, so I'm not sure if that's what he's referring to, but 
that would be a really interesting idea that thought of you're only going to your entire life's work is probably going to span only about 10 years and after that other people are going to supersede you so what you do in those 10 years really matters um yeah like you say kind of a terrifying thought yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I feel like there is just a theme in this movie of life is short and seize the day you know because we have Naoko having tuberculosis and she dies at a young age and we maybe it's more so and this is purely off the cuff I am making this up on the spot I'm an external processor this could be nonsense I don't know but I almost wonder if this is a mentality of living in a a world war time Mm -hmm. where there is a sense of life is shorter or people expect life to be shorter because they don't know what's coming next because the world seems to be terrifying and there's disaster everywhere and maybe it's maybe it's more so of a, a reflection of the mindset of the time and so it's like you know you're only going to be you can only you can only expect with certainty to be alive for X amount of years. So what are you going to do mm-hmm. with that time? Well, um, what, one thing I was so struck by in that relationship between Hiro and, and Nehoko is this um, sort of paradox, you know, no-win situation that they find themselves in where the protection and, um, you know, source of support that Hiro has is working for the company to create these planes. But he feels like he... You know, in order to do that work, um, he cannot be with Nohoko while she is simultaneously in the sanatorium getting better. And that will create separation for them. And so the decision that they ultimately come to is even if it is ultimately going to shorten the amount of time that Nohoko has left to live, we want to spend that time together in the same place. Even if we can't be together 24 7, at least have the opportunity to be together. Um, for a little bit each day, that is more valuable to us than um, uh, prolonging of Nahoko's life that probably would not even prolong it that much longer because her tuber- tuberculosis is incurable. And that decision they both mutually come to and stick to, you know, other people tell them she really needs to go back to the sanatorium, but their decision is, no, we really want to spend the amount of time, as much time together as we can. Um, which I just found very striking and very beautiful. Um, And I think that goes along with that theme of if your time is limited, you really need to be intentional about how you spend it. And they are. They are intentional in deciding it's more important for us to be together than for us to be um, having more time but spending it apart. And that that brings me back to that same question of, um, you know, of capacity. Caproni finally asking, or I guess, you know, Naoko telling him, I want you to live. And it's like, okay, so, you know, supposedly according to the, you know, the storylines of of this film and and the beliefs that it's established. So Hiro has finished his 10 years as an artist. So does that mean that, okay, now he really doesn't have much time left, you know, because you've already you've already finished these 10 years so live whatever time you've got left because the end is coming type of thing. Or is it like, you know, these 10 years are over. You have your life ahead of you. Live it to the fullest. Like you've be free and, and do these. You know, it's just and I don't think there I, at least 
I, you know, I've watched this movie a few times and, and I've thought about it a lot. I, I still don't have an answer. So part of me thinks maybe there isn't an answer to that that is meant to be explicitly taken from this film, but maybe there is and I, and I just don't see it. But I just, I don't know, for some reason, not for some reason, I mean, it's one of the last lines of the film. So I think it's meant to kind of stick with you for a while, but I just can't let go of that what is the intention of that there telling him telling him to live you know it's like was he not living before is it like okay now Oko's dead and so you can live your life without I I I just I'm like what does that mean yeah why are they asking him to live and what what does that imply about the the movie that we just watched and where this character is going um yeah I just don't know yeah I think my interpretation, as we're talking, you know, so this is only kind of half formed, but um, is that your 10 years are up, meaning your kind of contributions to the wider world, to history are now finished. And that takes this pressure off of you that you can now Mm -hmm. live the rest of your life without having to have that pressure, pressure of, um, needing to create something new, needing to be part of this larger historical moment. You can Do just... you think the pressure was ever on him to begin with though? I feel like Hiro wasn't like, oh my gosh, I feel he I felt like he was just kind of chilling, being like, I'm making planes. I don't know. Well, does it strike me as someone who's, you know, really, really mm-hmm. trying to beat the clock, you know? Yeah. I guess not pressure in the sense of someone kind of bearing down his neck, but more pressure in the sense of your vocation has now been fulfilled. Um, and so you can start to exist in a way, in a, in a wider way, um, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense. Even if it didn't, you and I are both just like, yeah, we're both <laughs> figuring a bit this like, out I don't as know. we talk. <laughs> um, gosh, I mean, what? there's just so much that happens in this movie. Um, I, mm. Yeah, I went down just to re- report because I <laughs> sometimes movies will just take me down a couple of different r- Wikipedia rabbit holes. I was going down the rabbit hole of, um, you know, the invention of the airplane and what it mm-hmm. was that the Wright brothers had um, discovered when they created the first airplane and how the technology then continued to, to develop before World War One. Um, and then I went down the rabbit hole of uh, when were antibiotics to treat tuberculosis uh, mm. developed? Because I was a little bit like, oh, no, go just just hang on a few more years. But I it know. was <laughs> post-World War II, sadly. So well, it would have I, been... I actually had the question while watching this, and this is a Japanese history thing that I just don't know, but I wonder if there was almost like a, a widespread thing of tuberculosis after all of those fires as a result of that you know, that, that we saw, I was like, I, I don't know. Maybe there's some sort of historical relevance there. That's purely me talking out of my butt. Like I, that could be wrong, but I don't know. I was like, I wonder if there's some correlation there, um, and a representation of some reality that was happening at the time. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what else. I mean, I don't know if there's anything in particular about um about the romantic relationship between Hiro and Naoko that you want to talk about more. I don't really have too like too much to say about that. I mean, I I think that they're sweet, but I'm not really like you know dying about I'm not like, "Oh my gosh, their relationship is like the best thing ever." I think it I think it's fine. Like I think it's sweet, but 
that's kind of it. It, it almost feels like a, not a subplot. Cause I do think it is important to the movie, but it, it's not, it doesn't seem to stand out as much to me as other things. Um, but it sounds like it was really impactful for you. So I don't know if there's anything more about that, that you'd want to touch on, uh, that we haven't discussed already, but it was, yeah. It, I, I mean, I don't know that I have a whole lot of, um, actual thoughts about it apart from it was, it was so sweet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was very so sweet. sweet. Um, I love the, the whole fact like that- hat, hat motif of like, oh, he goodness. loses his hat, yeah. she loses her hat. And then like decades later they lose hat, you know, I mm-hmm. think that that's cute. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that he's sort of, when she's sick and she's up in her hotel room, he's trying to get her attention by sending a little paper airplane over, which is very cute. Yeah. Um, you know, that's sort of, and the, the poem that he recites when he throws that, um, that paper airplane is one of the poems that came from like the, the poetry book that this movie was kind of loosely inspired by. Oh, interesting. Is it, yeah. is it the same lines of poetry that they, she had, uh, recited for him on the train, the, the, where the title comes from, the wind is rising and therefore yes. one must live. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 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 That being a sort of motif within their um, relationship was wonderful. Just, just curious, actually. What mm-hmm. do you think about the use of the wind in the movie? Like, is there sort of one thing that you could say that it symbolizes? How would you say that it's used throughout the narrative? Well, I think that there's one line in the movie that I think comes from the the poetry book. I don't know the specifics of it, but it's something along the lines of um, you can't see the wind until you see the leaves start to like move. But then once you see the leaves move, you know, the wind is right. It's something like that. So I feel like there's something probably in there in terms of some, some concept. And again, I'm just talking right now and we'll see if I get there, but I feel like there's probably some theme in terms of you don't like something is happening that you can't really see until it interacts with something else. And then you know that it's real. Um, I, I, I don't know what that is. That could be that could be interpreted in some sort of positive way through the film or some sort of negative way. It could be the concept of war. Like you don't really war kind of seems like something that's abstract until it shows up on your front door. And so maybe this whole movie is that concept of of Hito kind of living in this world where he he can kind of just be the wind and and move around and just experience the world but not really directly see the impact of of what he's doing he's just kind of living in this la la land of oh yeah my art and my planes those are the wind um but once they actually start like dropping bombs and destroying things and like well now we're really seeing you know this thing I don't know that that seems like a really negative way to interpret a concept that seems so beautiful so I feel like that's probably wrong um, but that's just the first idea that came to my mind. <laughs> I, I do like that. I mean, you could also say in that sense, um, the, the wind, it is war, but it's also love, you know, that is invisible until it causes people to act in ways that, you know, uproot their lives, but for the sake of doing something that, um, brings them happiness and for the sake of being closer to the person that they, they love. I think to me, the idea the wind is 
about change and movement forward into the future. And that could Mm -hmm. be for good or for evil. And so the idea of the wind rising is this indication that things are about to change. You know, either Mm -hmm. there's going to be, there is war on the horizon. There are, there's a fire that is coming that is being spread by the wind. Um, Or it's this indication, I mean, the wind brings um, um, uh, Hiro and Nohoko into each other's lives. And at the end, when he sees the wind rustling and it's this sort of, I think it's kind of him realizing that she has gone out of his life. Um, and yeah, and wind obviously being, you know, as these technologies are being pushed forward, the wind is essential for, you know, figuring it figuring it out and harnessing it is essential for creating these new and more and more advanced aircraft. Um, so harnessing the wind is the sense of moving Japan forward into the mm-hmm. um, the twentieth century for its military technology. So I don't know, it's a complex movie, many, many yeah. possible ideas. I mean, we do have that check in too with with Caproni around the middle of the film, where he asks him, you know, is the wind still rising? Mm. And I feel like that lends itself to some sort of explanation, or not explanation, but like some sort of answer to that question where things are progressing in mm-hmm. some or 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 at least they have the potential yeah. of progressing and that's mm-hmm. why he's asking the question whether that's yeah whether that's war or whether that's love or whether that's just the concept of change or advancement period it you know it's not just yeah i yeah there's definitely something something to that i love that question that was a good question i i feel like I feel like I should have asked. It's like the movie's called The Wind Rises. So <laughs> like I probably should have thought that that was a question we should talk about, but I didn't. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, are there any sequences that we've kind of, that, that, that we've left out? I mean, mm. we haven't talked too much about the beginning in terms of the earthquake or, mm. you know, him kind of taking care of her and helping his maid with her, her maid with her leg or or anything like that, or, or him being in school initially, you know, or him as a child, really. I, I don't know. I just want to make sure. I feel like I don't necessarily have anything specific to say about the beginning, but is there anything there for you that, that comes up that you want to mention? Mm, I feel like there should be something more to say about the beginning. But we Well, did- let me just ask you, what yeah. do you think about the animation of the earthquake and the the buildings kind of oh. moving up and down in this wave? I mean, it gorgeous. is terrifying, it is a, but gorgeous. It is a, I don't know the, what word I'm thinking of. But it's right there on the tip of my tongue, but I can't think of it. Oh, iconic. It is like an mm. iconic Miyazaki. If you watch any sort of Miyazaki compilation or any, you know, screen grabs or, or anything, this is one of his most notable and remembered animations that oh, he's ever designed. Like this, mm-hmm. this image of these buildings moving like that. Um, and I just, I think it's, it's stunning and so formidable. And, you know, it's just, but man, like, I just think that the combination of, I love, I mean, just the fact that all of this is hand drawn is just insane to me. Um, but I love how he combines different, at least in my opinion, it looks like different types of animation styles. You know, some things are a little bit more, they just look like pieces of a puzzle that are kind of just moving up and down and interacting with each other. And then some things kind of flow more naturally. And I feel like this particular sequence, even though it's so short, it's a really beautiful combination of like 
in my opinion, the rows of buildings feel very much so like, oh, this is just kind of a cardboard piece. But the way that they all move up and down together, one behind the other, makes them feel more fluid. And I, I don't know. I just think it's it's absolutely an incredible work of animation. I think it's it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have much more to add except yeah, it's it's amazing. It's gorgeous. It really does evoke, you know, if you've ever seen any kind of historical footage of roads and buildings, how they move during earthquakes and how just eerie it is because they are you would not expect the ground to be moving to the extent that it is. It's just terrifying. Um and it does such a good job of evoking that. I really love the shot of um Hiro while the train is shaking him just sort of clutching on to the handlebar mm. and kind of waiting for it to be over you know the sense of just how terrifying it would be to be in the middle of that you just kind of hold on to whatever is close to you and you know pray that you're lucky enough that you're not going to get squished by you know whatever happens to be near you um yeah yeah it's gorgeous so this actually, I think, is going to lead me to my my final question, which I think is a really good ending point, um, because we've talked a lot about the, you know, the themes of the movie and the storyline and the characters, which, you know, are obviously incredible. And, and Miyazaki, you know, there's a lot of films here, or films, there's a lot of themes here that kind of carry through all of his films, if not, you know, just several of them. And but another thing that is very well known across all of his films and very well respected, which I feel like we've barely talked about, is the visuals and the animations of this movie. So aside from that moment that we just talked about, is there anything in this movie visually that really strikes you in particular Particular that you're like, oh my gosh, you know, this really was stunning or this shot or this whatever? Like, is there anything that visually really stood out to you? Um... I think particularly the greenery in this film, the the sweeping land sh- landscape shots when the train is going through the countryside or um, when Hira and the Hoko meet again um, at that um, hotel kind of up in the, the mountains and all of the, the gorgeous fields where Nohoko no is painting. Um, it's just, yeah, I, I, I don't know enough about animation to really have the vocabulary to be specific, but it's just so, so incredibly gorgeous to me. You know, it's it's so intricate. It's just so um, colorful. It's so natural and yet stylized in this way that is, you know, kind of enhancing the beauty of nature. Um, yeah, it's it's gorgeous. Yeah, I, again, kind of similar to what I said earlier in terms of you kind of recognizing off the bat, you know, this this contrast of beauty with industrializations with all those things your answer that you just gave not that there's a right or wrong answer but that is something that is also you know people know Miyazaki for this you know he the way that he portrays the Japanese landscape of you know the the bright green colors and these rolling hills and and, and farmland and how water interacts with the greenery, you know, trees and grass, you know, this is what he's known for and no one does it like he does. I mean, it's not just the colors, it's the way that it's drawn, the way the clouds look, the, you know, it's just, it's so 
it's it, it's it's just so stunning and like i said in the beginning every time i watch his movies i'm like i want to move to japan oh Even though I'm pretty I, I was sure like japan... i want to be i want to go to japan now i need yeah, to be <laughs> even though i'm pretty sure japan does not look like that you know the colors are not that bright green or, or whatever <laughs> not that i'm saying japan isn't beautiful but it's definitely more of a fantasy interpretation of it but that's because miyazaki well i mean i'm not going to claim i know why but you know he he loves nature and he thinks mm-hmm. that the planet earth is beautiful in its most natural state. And he really does such a good job of capturing the world that he wants to see. And almost, it seems like the world that he believes could be possible if humans weren't here <laughs> destroying it. Um, but yeah, his ability to just capture this dreamlike and yet somehow realistic version of the earth is 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 just is just amazing and then also the fact that he's able to contrast the the beautiful bright vivid colors of nature with the dark browns and blacks and grays of the places where humans really have inhabit the space and have taken over um those are just you know not again not to keep repeating myself but it's 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 a it's a common thing throughout all of his movies and um it's definitely put put on broad display here in this movie in a way that's really just bombastic and uh just 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 great so yeah yeah absolutely yeah it made yeah. me think a lot of um I don't know especially the sequence during the hotel I just kept thinking about the work of the you know the great European impressionists you know your your Van Goghs your Monets your Renoirs and their their use of naturalism the use of light the use of color um it just evoked that a lot. Also, I not only do I want to go to Japan, I want to specifically stay at that hotel because that place looks amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I'm not gonna lie. I've wanted to go to Japan for a long time for several reasons, but Miyazaki films. I'm like, I want to go to. I just want to go there and like walk out into farmland somewhere and just like sit there and and paint like Naoko be like I'm gonna bring a canvas I'm gonna find a hill somewhere and I'm just gonna stand there and paint the painting will be very bad but I don't care because <laughs> I'm here for the vibes and for the experience um which is probably incredibly simplifying of I I'm very aware that there are a lot more things that Japan has to offer I'm not saying that Japan is is invaluable in other ways but um yeah that yeah that's just an experience I would like to have when I go visit Japan among other things but yeah. um well and i feel like i mean my experience with japanese cinema is very limited but what i the ones that i have seen tend to be more set within the you know the cities the urban landscape of japan so it is really nice to see something that is emphasizing more the the pastoral the rural um landscape of japan as well yeah i i can't wait to start bringing more east asian cinema onto this podcast it's going to be fun um okay Cool. Is there anything else that you want to touch on before we move forward or you feeling good? I'm feeling good. Okay. Well, I'm feeling great. <laughs> good. Um, <laughs> I'm genuinely so glad that you liked this movie. I mean, it, it makes me very happy. And I hope, I hope it makes you run to go watch the other <laughs> Studio Ghibli films. Like they're all on max. Mm-hmm. They're all, they're all short except for Spirited Away, which I think is long-ish. This uh, one was two hours, a spirited way also. It might be a little bit longer. I don't remember. Um, but anyway, they're, they're pretty like quick, quick watches. Um, and there's one for every mood. It's like if you want to be depressed, he's got those. If you want to just 
be like swept away into a whimsical world of joy and happiness. He's got those. (laughs) And then he's got things that are in the middle and it's great. Um, anyway, so, uh, so yeah, just kind of moving forward. So this movie is very highly revered as you know, it should be. So on Metacritic, it has an 83 and on Rotten Tomatoes has an 88. I feel like those are a little bit low in my opinion, but that's fine. There are a lot of people that find this movie to be controversial, but quite honestly, I think they're missing the point. I don't think this movie is glorifying, uh, making weapons of mass destruction, but if that's how people interpret it, I, well, I'm not going to say you're wrong, but, uh. I think you're missing the point. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so this movie was only nominated for one Oscar, which I think is a travesty. Uh, why was Miyazaki not nominated for Best Director? Why was it, you know, there's lots of things it should have been nominated for, but I digress. Uh, especially, I'm sorry, this movie lost to Frozen. I just saw which, that on the outline and now I'm really mad. <laughs> which I which I hate uh, because hot take, I do not think that movie is very good. Uh, I think it's incredibly overrated and it has been, uh, monopolized, monotonized. What's the word I'm looking for? Monetized. It has been monetized into oblivion and I'm so sick of it. But also I looked up all of the nominations that year and the wind rises still should have won. So it went up against frozen, the crudes, despicable me too, Ernest and Celestine and uh, The Wind Rises. I've not seen Ernest and Celestine. So yeah, maybe I've that's never even heard great. of Ernest and Celestine. But yeah, um, of those, that list, uh, Wind I, Rises I should have been the clear winner. I honestly feel like Frozen deserved it the least out of all of those. Like, mm-hmm. I think The Croods is better. I think Despicable Me 2 is better. Like, and The Wind Rises is eons above any yeah. of those Frozen other movies. Frozen is... A couple of very good songs and a script that really needed another. It's very, pass. very subpar. Yeah. Um. But whatever. That's why. That's why that's you fine. know we talk about the wind rises on this podcast mm-hmm. and not frozen because the wind rises is more worthy of discussion. Has anyway. um. This is probably not fair to be asking you because I, you probably oh, didn't look this up. But do nope. you know? Has Miyazaki won the Oscar for best animated feature for any of his films in the past? I. I do not think that he he has, and I think that that is a huge complaint from a lot of people. I don't know. I'm looking at um, right now. He has won one Oscar. Let's see what it's Oscar, for. Probably directing for Spirited Away. That's my prediction. Uh, let's Am I see. right? Winner, best oh, animated feature, Spirited Away. Oh, okay. Yeah, that movie okay. is a... Oh, man. Yeah, that yeah. movie is crazy. It's so good. He um, was also nominated for Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah, Howl's Moving Castle is is that is a fun fantasy one. Mm. I I love Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah, but that is um, um that's not as many nominations as I would have expected. Yeah, he yeah. I mean not all of his movies are show stoppers. I mean they're all visually stunning. Some of them are a lot more simplistic in terms of their messaging mm. than others. Um well, I wonder when were his movies popular in the United States from the very beginning or was there a certain point at which they started to become you know, they started to become crossover hits in the United States and people went back to the earlier ones and those started to become more beloved as well. I, I don't know enough about the arc of his career to know if he's, um, if there was a definite point where he started to be more recognized in the U.S. or not. 
I feel like it, I mean, this is a pure guess. I haven't researched this, but I should. This is a really interesting question. Um, but I feel like my neighbor Totoro was pretty big mm, in the U.S. Okay. And that, I, I believe his first, like, like full feature was Nausicaa. Because I remember watching that one and the animation. I mean, it looks beautiful, but it definitely looks old, older. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, yeah. But most of the people that I know that were super into studio ghibli when they were younger they're japanese so maybe it wasn't actually maybe it didn't cross over till later i don't know because okay. i honestly didn't get into ghibli i mean i knew of it but i didn't get into it until a lot of my japanese friends were like tatum mm-hmm. like in college one of my friends showed me my neighbor totoro and i was like oh my gosh why have i never watched like this is amazing and then from there it just kind of grew but interesting um, i'm just looking yeah. up his wikipedia so this is you know it's wikipedia um but it says that Princess Mononoke, um, uh, its distribution in the Western world greatly increased Studio Ghibli's popularity and influence outside of Japan. And that was in 1997. So it sounds I like... Will, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I will say one thing that I did see from my research is that like, I, I, the animation world knew mm-hmm. about this. Like mm-hmm. Pixar was very much so inspired by this. You know, John Laster has quotes of saying, you know, whenever they were making a movie and they didn't know where to go, they would turn on a Studio Ghibli film and say, how did Miyazaki do it? Mm. And Pixar was basically chomping at the bit to have a a collaboration with Studio Ghibli when it came to distributing these movies in the U.S. Uh And so, you know, it, it was definitely known in the animation world and highly respected in the animation world by particularly people from Pixar. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think, may, I, again, I don't know the history of this, but maybe after Pixar kind of jumped on board with the distribution, then it came to America a little bit more. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I'll, I'll do more research next time. Whenever we do Spirit Away, Spirited Away, I will mm-hmm. not do research an hour before we start recording and I will have more, <laughs> more in-depth information. Um but anyway, okay, so I'm gonna so I'm gonna read um, a review that I found for this movie. This one is a little bit long, but I'm gonna read it because I thought that all of the information was super interesting. So this comes from James Berardinelli at Real v- Real Views, and he says um, American audiences have come to associate animated film with suitable for children. That's not the case here. Content-wise, there's nothing objectionable about The Wind Rises, although the earthquake. Although the earthquake sequence might be too intense for young kids, this is animation for adults. The pace, content, and thematic heft aren't child-friendly. There are no cute talking animals or musical numbers. Thankfully, there's no 3D. A lot of what transpires during the course of the narrative is understated. Mature children may be enraptured, but those who tend to fidget will lose interest quickly. The hand-drawn style embraces... The hand-drawn style embraced by Miyazaki has become a dinosaur in the industry, but The Wind Rises shows the power it retains when wielded by a master. This is a rich and visually stunning motion picture. The backgrounds are like paintings with an amazing attention to detail. The characters are realized with deftness and smoothness. It's a very different experience than the one than the one achieved by computer-generated animation. The world created by Miyazaki is an artist's representation of reality, but that in no way diminishes the effectiveness of the story or limits our ability to relate to the characters. If this is indeed Miyazaki's farewell effort, he has left behind a memorable parting gift. I really enjoyed that review. Um, yeah. I feel it's... like it touches on a lot of different things in terms of the animation style and the 
the implications of the story and just how it connects to Miyazaki and the fact that this is the last and probably will be the last uh, full animated feature that Miyazaki has directed. Um, so yeah, and man, if you, Geneva, I don't know how much you know about Miyazaki, but if you ever want to do research on his personal life, it is fascinating. Because he, he has kids and they've been very vocal about, you know, how he was so um, like obsessed with his work that he was basically an absent father mm-hmm. and people glorify him for this work that he's created, but they see him as this obsessive kind, you know, but then mm-hmm. his son, I think has stepped up to direct some movies from studio Ghibli since he's, re- it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, which I think, you know, continues yeah. with the themes of the wind rises of like, you know, you have these dreams of art, but at mm. what cost, you know? Yeah. Artists anyway. who have very complex li- personal lives and relationships to their own uh, creations. Yeah. Um, okay. So final thoughts. I mean, I, I don't really know what else there is to say. <laughs> um, this movie I just think is, is incredible. Um, the visuals are great. The story is fantastic. It asks a lot of really, um, really interesting questions that I think prompt you to think and I think the fact that Geneva has been thinking about this since this morning and I've been thinking about it for years and neither of us really have solid answers on a lot of things I think that that is a sign you know of this movie just being you know it 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 connects with the human experience without telling you how to feel about it or how to think about it and I think that that is um a rare a rare experience when watching a movie so um yeah, I'm really glad we got to talk about this. Uh, anything for you, Geneva, that just really is going to stick with you? Um, yeah, I mean, so I think a lot of this movie is just going to stick with me. Just images and, you know, the the beauty of the, the landscape imagery, as we talked about. And then just the theme of um, art as this sort of pursuit in vocation, life being limited, um, the idea of... Um, managing kind of complex contradictions and um you know sometimes problematic ones in the intersection between art or the pursuit of excellence the pursuit of something new and the ways that it can get twisted and misused by um you know uh, political and and military considerations but uh the idea of still managing to find something of beauty and uh worth in the midst of that yeah i think it's a a really interesting complex as we've used this word so many times when talking about this movie um but there are a lot of layers to unpeel there um that i'll be thinking about for a long time yeah oh wait a minute one final question i'm so sorry before Mm. we sign out um so you said you said that you cried in this movie several times. Can you tell me what those moments were? Um, well, obviously, if you can remember them, <laughs> yeah. obviously the big one was, um, you know, at the end when uh, Nohoko goes back to the sanatorium and basically makes the decision to um, go and die there so that um, Hiro won't um, be with her in in her sort of final decline and him seeing the wind rising one last time and kind of understanding Mm -hmm. that that she is gone that was you know that was the big set of tears there were just several moments I think especially in moments of beauty like I remember the um 
the, during the train ride, um, you know, the, the very first train ride, uh, even prior mm-hmm. to him meeting Nahoko, him going off to um, to school, I can't remember if there was some, it was kind of following after a conversation that he had with the Count in his dream, if there was a specific line there or not. But I just remember getting really choked up about it because I was like, it's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. There are just there are just a few moments where it's just it's so beautiful and also there's so much kind of going on with um, you know as a person who really wants to to be artistic and to fulfill their p- potential and just all these themes that I'm really interested in. Um, it was just you know so much it just kind of got me choked up. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I love yeah. that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, I felt weird saying that. I love it when you cry. It's amazing. Uh, I do it a lot, I so you'll be very happy. Um, yeah, okay. Except the movies where I cry. It's like I'm weeping during Million Dollar Baby, and you're like, I feel nothing. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, that's I'm fine. Pretty, I'll just I, lay here on the floor. It's okay. I, I think I did get a little choked up at the end of Million Dollar Baby. I, I do cry very easily at movies, and I sometimes mean, it's not even something specific it'll just be there's just so much emotion and meaning and promise going on and so I just start to get a little bit choked up um yeah yeah I get very emotional how can you not cry watching million dollar baby when she's like don't make me lay here till I can't hear them chanting anymore like (laughs) ah Makushla my darling (laughs) anyway all right do you cry you don't you don't cry super regularly at movies, right? You do, but it, it generally has to be kind of a more specific movie that hits you in a specific way. Is that right? Yeah. Like, I don't I don't just... Not saying that you cry at anything, but, but for me, it has to be something, like, that very specifically tri- strikes a very specific chord. And probably if I thought about it more, I could figure out what that is. But did you, did you at, cry at this? Yeah. No. <laughs> um the maybe the first time I watched it I don't maybe I don't remember that was years ago maybe the first time but I don't I don't remember crying watching this but yeah not that I wasn't moved um but yeah I don't know yeah Man. we should have a conversation sometime about crying at movies we should that would be fun yeah um yeah anyway all right uh speaking of movies that make you do the opposite of crying, uh, what are we talking <laughs> laugh, about? To next? Cry and everything in between. <laughs> yeah, what are we talking about next week, Geneva? Yes, I'm very excited. Next week we are discuss discussing a favorite of mine, another comfort watch for, for me that I've kind of just rewatched a billion times. We're watching Pygmalion from 1938. Um yeah. So, yeah, it'll be a I, good talk. I have not seen it. So, We'll see what happens. Look forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah. Thanks for listening. And uh, see you next time. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We are excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time.